Today's scripture reading is from 1 Timothy, the second chapter. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and golds or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Pepsi, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dana. That was fun, right? <laughs> Go ahead and have a seat. Sure, some of you were like, thanks be to God when Dana was reading. Great job, Dana. Thanks for taking that hard passage on. Uh, Katie and I were actually talking about last night, she mentioned she was tempted to play only the minor chords as Dana was reading. I told her it would be better if she could finish with like a da da da. Anyway, it was funny. I was sharing, when I shared with my wife what the passage was for this week, she asked me how I was going to handle it. I said, you know, I'm going to have the men turn to the women around them and tell them they are saved through childbearing. She said, and I will walk out. (laughs) And then she saw me get up this morning and get dressed. She's like, ah, you're dressing for your funeral. Good job. (laughs) Like, wow, so encouraging. Uh, In all seriousness, friends, this is where our commitment to be a biblical church gets real. All right? Uh, This is uh, where the rubber meets the road. If we are just preaching on different topics like a lot of churches do, we would always, always skip over these passages. If we were a seeker-sensitive church trying to make sure we're not creating offense, we'd never read a passage like this. In fact, I dare say that in most churches around America today, you would never hear this passage preached, never, all right? But here at Pepsi, we believe it with all our hearts that all Scripture is God-breathed, amen? amen? All Scripture, including what we just read. That means we've got to do some hard work this morning. So you've got to buckle up, all right? We're going to do some hard work getting our heads and our hearts around what the Apostle Paul is saying. He makes a very complex argument uh, about gender roles and gender distinctions goes all the way back to the creation story and it really sets up a tension actually that the church has been struggling with for 2,000 years. And I don't pretend we're going to solve that tension today, but I do believe we'll find greater understanding 
as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to what he would teach us this morning. And as we seek that greater understanding together, I trust the Spirit to bring even greater unity, maybe not unanimity, but greater unity in our midst as a church family. So let's pray. And let's ask the Lord uh, to guide us as we dive in. Father, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to the mysteries of your word. You know, Lord, much, much of what we read in your Bible, in your word, is wonderful. It's so easy to understand your great love for us, your great faithfulness towards us, the fact that you've adopted us as your children and made a place for us in your house where we will live with you for all eternity. These are glorious truths that bring such comfort and such joy and such peace. But then there are the more challenging parts of your word, Father, Passages where we experience a disconnect and we wonder what it all means and how it could possibly apply to our 21st century uh, context. And today we have one of those texts before us. And so we ask for your spirit to gently guide our steps as we walk through these verses. As you reveal your will to us, may we be drawn ever deeper into trust and find ourselves submitting ever more and more to your eternal word. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our loving Savior. And all God's people said, amen. Many of you may know the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon. How many of you know that name? You know that name? Yeah. Uh, he was considered the prince of preachers in the 19th century. He pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for 38 years. Spurgeon began his preaching ministry at the age of 19, four years after his conversion. And by age 22, he was the most popular preacher in all of England. When the church he served built their new building, they made sure their sanctuary sat 5,000 people, which was crazy big at the time, and they had a standing room area that had room for 1,000 more, and that place was packed Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Now, his sermons were very plain spoken, but, but, but very powerful. He preached straight from the Bible, and he challenged people to place their faith in Jesus. And although he never gave a traditional altar call, kind of strange for a Baptist, but he never gave a traditional altar call, he always extended an invitation for people to meet with him on Monday mornings at his office if they wanted to seek Christ. And there were always people waiting for him there when he showed up. Uh, over the course of his life and ministry, thousands came to faith. He, his church did an amazing job of serving the poor in their community. They built orphanages and schools and even built a hospital for those who couldn't afford health care. The impact of this man's ministry was simply incredible. Reverberates to this day. I mean, it's just amazing. Well, one day, five college students came to London to hear Spurgeon preach. And they arrived early. They were met by this kind gentleman at the door who offered to give him a tour of the church. And uh, along the way, they asked all kinds of questions, you know, wanting to find out more about the church and their ministry. They wanted to know the secret behind the power of Spurgeon's preaching, and so their guide took them uh, to the basement, to the furnace room of the church. Now, it was a hot July day, and these students were wondering, what the heck is he doing? But when he opened the door, they saw several hundred people gathered there praying for those who would attend the service that was about to begin. And then the guide introduced himself. It was Spurgeon himself. And he wanted those kids to know that the true source of the power behind his ministry was prayer. It was prayer. Now you think about the Apostle Paul and the advice he could have given Timothy, right? I mean, of all the things he could have talked about to Timothy, this young pastor, about how to run a church, right? He could have talked about 
my gosh, he could have talked about leadership, he could have talked about um, organization, he could have talked about preaching, teaching, mission, evangelism, could have talked about serving the poor, uh, the widow, the orphan, you know, planting new churches in the villages surrounding Ephesus. All those things are important to be sure, and Paul will actually address some of those in these two letters. But the matter of first importance in Paul's mind is prayer. Matter of first importance. That's the power source of the ministry, according to Spurgeon. Um, and Paul believed that as well. First of all, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul encouraged Timothy to devote himself to all kinds of prayer, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. Now, I honestly don't know that there's that much of a difference between each of these in Paul's mind, though one scholar suggests that maybe supplications involves making requests for specific needs, prayers involves bringing those requests before God. Intercession involves pleading boldly and fervently on their behalf. And thanksgiving involves thankfulness to God for faithfully receiving them. That may or may not be true, but I think the broader point here is what is important. Timothy was to pray God-sized prayers. God-sized prayers. Prayers that were large and expansive and wide-ranging. They should be personal as well as local, as well as global, right? His prayers should concern nothing less than the salvation of the Roman Empire, the salvation of the pagan nations surrounding him, the pagan city in which he lived, and the pagan people whom he served. His prayers should, should concern the major social and political and economic and cultural issues of his day, and he should never just limit his prayers to personal or parochial concerns. No, Paul says pray in all kinds of ways for all kinds of people. That includes the lost and the hurting and the broken. It includes the poor and the crushed in spirit. It includes those who are grieving and those who have experienced loss. It includes those who are hostile to the gospel. Those who would stir up strife and division in the church. Even his enemies. And it includes especially kings and all those who are in high positions. Now it's important to remember there were no Christian kings at the time. No Christian leaders to speak of. Very few Christians in high governmental positions. In fact, the opposite was probably more true, right? There was growing persecution against the church, growing persecution against this movement of God. The Roman emperor was a man named Nero who, who was famous for throwing Christians to the lions and, and putting them on stakes and lighting them up as torches to light his gardens at night. The rulers in, in Paul and Timothy's day were all enemies of the gospel, and yet Paul encourages Timothy to pray for them because he knows those are the folks who keep the peace. Those are the ones who provide for what they called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that allowed the gospel to spread so rapidly through the empire. And more, more, even more than that, Paul knew that despite their hostility, God loved them. And desired them to be saved. And so he commands Timothy to dedicate time and energy to specifically praying for them. Now friends, should we not do the same? Right? Should we not pray for our governmental leaders, whether they are Republican or Democrat? Friendly or hostile to the gospel? How many of us spend dedicated time on a regular basis praying for our president, vice president, Congress, Supreme Court, governor, legislature, town council here in Parker? 
This is Paul's command to us. And it's one of the reasons why we began our year, if you were here, with a special service dedicated to prayer. It's one of the reasons why we include a community prayer every single week. That's why we do that, is because Paul has commanded us to lift up all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people everywhere. And it's why we pray for local concerns as well as global concerns. It's why we pray for other nations and mission partners around the world, because God knows no partiality. There can be no room for racism or classism or nationalism or tribalism or anything else that might narrow the horizon of our prayers. There can be no political partisanship or no personal agenda that drives us when we pray. There can be no sense of competition with other churches or other ministries. It's why we pray for other churches every week here at Pepsi, because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are all on the same team. We are all advancing the kingdom of God, and, and, it's, and it's why we encourage you to spend time in prayer as well, each and every day, and with your small groups, and with your Bible studies, because prayer provides the power, not only for ministry, but for all of life. Amen? Yeah, amen. Well, Paul continues his discussion of prayer, that's what this whole section is about, by the way, by talking about our position or our posture when it comes to prayer. Now this is where it starts to get a little dicey, so we've got to keep a few things in mind as we read. First and foremost, we need to remember that though the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. Let me, let me say that again. This is so important. We, we forget this. This is not a 21st century document. Though the Bible was written for us, it is God's word to us, it was not written to us. It was originally written to a particular group of people in a particular place and time who lived in a particular culture that shaped and formed their understanding of the world. In this case, Paul is writing his letter to first century Christians living in a thoroughly Hellenized Greco-Roman cultural context in a city that is largely full of pagan Gentiles. Ephesus was one of the major cities in the Roman Empire. It do was dominated by the cult of Artemis. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Hundreds, if not thousands, of prostitutes served uh, the temple, and an entire economy had built up around the sacred rites of this particular pagan goddess. You might remember that when Paul first came to Ephesus and started preaching the gospel, a riot broke out because so many Gentiles were coming to faith and leaving paganism behind, and this put a serious dent in the business of the silversmiths and the other tradespeople who made the idols that the people bought when they came to town, and so they stirred up the entire city to come after Paul because they were afraid he was going to single-handedly bring down their business and their religion. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 19. It's incredible. And this historical context is very important if we're going to make sense of what Paul is writing here. And the technical term for what we're doing here, this is what they teach you in seminary, right, is a term called exegesis. Exegesis. It's a fancy term we use to describe the process by which we excavate or we, or we draw out of the text its particular meaning. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is the opposite process. It's what happens when we seek to impose our own cultural understandings onto the text. You see it happen all the time when people try to take 21st century cultural, Western cultural values and impose them on the Bible. It just doesn't work because the cultural distance is too great. And so, for example, many people look at this passage and argue that Paul is a misogynist, right? But that can't be true because, number one, misogyny is a 21st century Western cultural category. It doesn't apply to the first century. They wouldn't have any idea what that was. And number two, what Paul is actually doing here in this passage, if you read it closely, is encouraging women 
to engage in prayer and to learn the Word of God, both of which would have shattered first century cultural norms. Women in the Greco-Roman world were considered intellectually inferior. They were considered more property than persons. They were largely left out of the educational system. And things were even worse in the Jewish culture that Paul had grown up in. According to the Talmud, it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than to be entrusted to a woman. How'd you like to grow up in a context like that? And so Paul is confronting the culture of his day and liberating women from their cultural bondage. And throughout the New Testament, we see Paul thanking women for their vital ministry and their partnership in the gospel. He encourages them to make full use of their gifts, even in public worship. In addition to his encouragement for women to pray here in this passage, and again, this is public prayer, he encourages them to prophesy in 1 Corinthians 11. He tells them to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom in Colossians chapter 3. He believes wholeheartedly in the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 and the pre preaching of Peter in Acts when he said, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. All flesh. That's why many people argue that the Bible has been one of the most effective forces in human history for elevating the status of women. Now, if all that is true, and it is, what the heck is happening then in this passage? Like, what is he talking about? Well, this is where we have to do, again, the hard work of teasing out what is cultural and what is eternal in what Paul is teaching. Let me show you what I mean. Paul says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, I think we would all agree that in every place, men should pray. Amen? Yeah, okay. That's an eternal principle. We probably also agree that when men pray, they probably shouldn't do it in anger or conflict, right? Probably not great, okay? Um, hard to pray when you're ticked at the people that you're praying for, right? I mean, that's just difficult to do. So, so we understand that. That's, again, an eternal principle. So far, so good. What about the lifting, then, of holy hands? Do you lift your hands, men, every time you pray? Okay? If you do not, then you probably agree with most that that is more of a cultural practice than an eternal principle, that there's actually lots of different ways to pray, lots of different postures to prayer, right, that we can engage in and so and so we we understand that we make that distinction then you move on to verses 9 and 10 likewise paul says meaning when women engage in public prayer just like the men likewise women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair I, I probably shouldn't talk about hair um anyway i fully fully admit that anyway gold pearls costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, again, I, I don't know anyone who would argue that women shouldn't pray or that women shouldn't do so with modesty, humility, self-control, and godliness. These are eternal principles. But when it comes to how women dress or do their hair, most agree these are cultural practices we don't need to engage in anymore. So why does Paul mention them at all? Well, it's because prostitutes 
Serving at the temple of Artemis in the city were known for how they dressed. They were known for the particular ways that they wore their hair, these elaborate hairstyles that they would do. That's actually how they were identified when you saw them around the city. You could immediately pick them out of a crowd, and he didn't want any of the Christian women being mistaken for them. Some, same with the wealthy women of the city. They like to show off their gold and their jewelry and their costly attire. And Paul passionately believed such class distinctions had no part in the church. And so he tells Timothy to instruct the women to lay those distinctions aside for the sake of the gospel and the good of the community. Does that make sense? All right, you tracking? All right. Now let's look at this last part. I mean... This is the most difficult part of the passage, to be sure, but it's not easy necessarily to tease out what's cultural and what's eternal here, uh, but we'll, we'll make our best attempt. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Again, let a woman learn. That in itself is a radical statement. Let her learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Again, it's important to remember Paul, again, encouraging women to learn was pretty radical. But let's also remember that learning quietly with submissiveness is actually good advice for both men and women. It's actually how we learn best, right? I mean, if we are loud and disruptive, no one can learn. Like if you say amen in church, no one can learn, right? That's why you don't do it. Y'all are just quiet. And submissive, and I appreciate that. I amen myself up here quite frequently. All right? <laughs> anyway, just ask any teacher, right? Quietness and submission, that's a good thing, right? And, and uh, that seems to be an eternal principle. But what about teaching and holding authority over a man? Are these principles culturally bound or eternally relevant? The answer is found in the story that Paul references here from Genesis 2 and 3. Now, if you remember the creation story, God created man and woman in his image. As such, they are equally loved. They are equal in dignity and worth before the Lord. They both walked before God in the Garden of Eden, and they both were charged to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and to exercise authority over all God had made. Now, Genesis 2 teaches us that Adam was created first, and as such, he is God's firstborn and is given significant responsibility in that position. But it isn't good for Adam to be alone, so Eve is created to be his helper, not his servant, not his slave. That's a corruption of the spiritual headship God has given to Adam. No, men and women are to be partners in God's great kingdom work, and their relationship is to be modeled after Christ himself. Now, at the same time, that's not to erase the distinctions between men and women. All right? They're meant to be complementary to one another. They're meant to, 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 to complete one another. When Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, if you flip back a few, few books in the Bible, you'll read about him talking about to the, the husband is to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and he is to exercise his authority just like Christ, which doesn't mean making all the decisions or wielding all the power. What it means is laying down his life for his wife just as Christ lays down his life for the church. That's the kind of leadership God has called and entrusted to Adam. It's servant leadership. It's a leadership of self-sacrifice rather than selfishness. It's a leadership of love rather than pride. It's a leadership that liberates rather than enslaves. That's the authority first entrusted to Adam to which Eve is called to submit. 
But what happens in the garden? Adam abdicates his spiritual authority when the serpent tempts Eve, and Eve usurps Adam's God-given role by asserting herself and eating the forbidden fruit. That's what Paul's referring to when he says Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. It's not that she was more gullible or less intelligent than Adam. It's that she had stepped out of her role, which was to be Adam's helper. Now, it seems clear to me that male spiritual headship and authority is an eternal principle. Okay? And it's one we should follow and practice in the church and in our families and and, and, and in society, keeping in mind that it's never about power, never about power, always about humility and service and laying one's life down for our wives, children, and those around us. At the same time, it also seems clear to me that the respective roles that men and women might play in our homes, in our society, in our churches, will will change depending on what's culturally normative and acceptable. In Paul's day, women worked primarily inside the home. They raised their children and they worked their gardens and they maintained the home, whereas men primarily worked outside the home. In our day, both men and women work outside the home and both men and women work inside the home. In some families, the mom is the primary caregiver. In other families, it's the dad. In some families, the woman has the higher paying job. In other families, it's the man. In Paul's day, women were not allowed to teach because they simply didn't have the training or the access to the education. In our day, both men and women are highly educated and able to teach and quite often do. But what about in the church? What about the spiritual authority given to pastors and to elders? Are these roles open to both men and women? And if so, does that violate the eternal principle of male headship? Is that another example of Eve usurping the role given to Adam? Well, some say yes. Others say no, and both can make a strong case from the Scriptures for their position, and so guess what? We have to live with the tension, friends. We have godly people in our church family who fall on both sides of this equation. And if we make it about power, if we make it about who is right and who is wrong and who gets to win, then we will all lose. We will all lose. Instead, we must reaffirm our unity, not necessarily our unanimity, our unity around essential issues like male spiritual headship and gender distinctiveness in the complementary roles God has called both men and women to play in his created order while acknowledging the non-essential differences and how they might map out practically in the respective roles men and women may play in the home or in the church or in society as a whole. We have to resist making this a struggle for power or control and instead extend freedom to each other to make the decisions that are the best fit for each person or for each family. Most of all, we must cling to the love of Christ, which binds us all together and keeps us connected when these kinds of things threaten to tear us apart. And i got to tell you, churches divide over these kinds of things. They do, they split, and that breaks the heart of Christ. Now, there's one final statement here that we need to deal with, and it has to do with the woman being saved through childbearing. Clearly, Paul knows not all women bear children. He knows not all women can bear children, either because they don't get married or they're physically unable to get pregnant. So what does he mean? Here we must keep in mind, again, the story that Paul is working with out of Genesis 2 and 3. If you remember what happens in Genesis 3, right, after the fall of of man, there are these there are these, these, these judgments that God gives to the serpent and to the woman and to, and to Adam, right? But in the midst of all of that, there is a promise given specifically to Eve. Though there, will, though there will be warfare between her offspring and the serpent, between humanity and the devil, there will come a day, Genesis 3.15 says, when a child 
will be born. A Messiah, a Savior who will crush the serpent's head once and for all. And if you read the original Greek in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it literally says she will be saved through the birth of a child. That's what it literally says, through the birth of a child. This is God's gift given uniquely to women. In fact, they play the most important role when it comes to God's plan of salvation. For from them and their ability to bear children will come the Savior of the world. Amen? Yeah. All right, take a deep breath. You survived. All right, you made it. Okay, you may still have questions, and that's awesome. Let's meet. Let's talk. Let's grab coffee. You know, let's grab a drink. Let's parse this stuff out. We can talk about anything here at Pepsi, all right? No question, no doubt is off limits. We love having these conversations. And with that, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up, and, and our, I'll ask our children to come back in and join us for our final song as well. Let me, as they do, let me take you back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3, and seven, 3 through 7. This really is the heart of the passage okay, by the way, really points us to the purpose behind all our prayers. Why do we pray? This is why, friends, we pray. This is good, Paul says. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of His truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And for this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher to the Gentiles or to the nations in faith and truth. Why, friends, are men and women ultimately called to pray? Because God in His graciousness has determined to work through our prayers to bring about His plan of salvation. It's why prayer is the power plant of the church. In His graciousness, God has ordained prayer to be an essential work, essential to the work of the gospel. And so again, hear the good news. God's desire is for all to be saved and come to a knowledge of His truth. God has provided one mediator in Christ who gave his own life as a ransom for all. And God has now called us to go forth out to the nations to proclaim this gospel to all. All people, all nations, everywhere, starting right outside our front door. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. It is such a glorious thing to come and to worship you and to, and to thank you, God, for all that you're doing, to thank you for who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be and how you have set up the world and how it should operate and, and our relationships, men and women, and, and, and all of those things, God. And we want to submit, God, to your will. We want to submit to your sovereign will, Lord. We want to embrace the unity that was won for us in Jesus Christ. We know, God, we will not always agree. We will not always have unanimity. And that's not what it's about. Because our fellowship together does not rest upon our agreement. It rests upon what you have done in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, for that, we give you thanks. Continue to bind our hearts together in unity that we might go forth and proclaim this great gospel, the great good news of salvation for all who would believe, God. Uh, may we go forth in the power of your Holy Spirit, God, to give that good news away. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Hey, let's stand and sing our final song together.